4: So we've stopped doing introductions to the podcast haven't we we
0: just drift into it
4: here we are drifting into our very successful podcast off air with jane and fee thank you for listening we are we're really touched don't we
0: we're very touched and actually that's the spin-off podcast isn't it drift in drift in <laughs> tune out <laughs> show up Go home, right? Uh, we've got loads of lovely emails, and thank you for sending them, Jane and Fee at Times Radio. And do you know what, Jane? I love it when the emails go rogue.
4: Which one's this?
0: Well, just when when people start talking about things that they just want to talk about. Uh, but let's go with. Uh, triangular shaped bean burgers yeah i like this yep uh, this comes from vicky love your podcast thanks for sharing input from someone who was making the case for meat-shaped vegan food i think that was you wasn't it <laughs>
4: well i'm just puzzled uh, <laughs> because i cater for a vegan and a vegetarian and so much of their food is meat-shaped plant-based content oh
0: yes and then we got the lovely email from someone explaining that it was for people who were kind of vegetarian adjacent so they were comforted by the fact that a vegetarian thing was shaped like something they could identify in the meat world because
4: i also said when i was a vegetarian uh back in the late 80s and 90s you just had the vegetables and in my case (laughs) the gravy (laughs) i just didn't eat the meat and we weren't catered for So I didn't care. It's
0: been a difficult life, Joan. I'm amazed that you've come through it with so much bonhomie. And I'm using a French word there, which we will talk about later. I'm going to carry on with Vicky's email, which says, I thought I'd share my own thoughts on this matter. Does pork have the monopoly on cylinder shapes? It's a beefy old question. Does beef have the only rights to a circle, a.k.a. a burger, as cylinders and circles meat shaped? Vicky, you've gone off on one. Now, if vegan food was shaped as a roasted chicken, which is obviously animal shaped, Well, some of them aren't, are they? Uh, I think I could understand why somebody would be confused by that, but I don't think that exists. Maybe mushed together beans should only be provided in square shapes or triangles so as not to cause confusion. Surely beetroot burgers have more right to be circular than beef burgers, though, as beetroots are actually circular, unlike cows. Food for thought. Keep up the good work. Vicky, you've really started something there. Vicky, I think that's that's gone to the top of my emails of the year
4: pile, <laughs> that has. Because, you know, she's really made me think. Um, I mean, why is it that pork is only served in cylinder shapes? It's very odd. I uh, mean, you can have beef sausages, can't you? But they're, Or chicken sausages now, I've noticed. But they're not as common or as popular.
0: I think the great thing in that uh, is just asking why food shapes can never be square or triangular. And it's true, once you gravitate from triangle things in kids' foods, and some spaghetti, and notably the cheeses, are in triangle form, you don't often come across a triangle in adult food life.
4: it's the Toblerone, triangular chocolate. Yeah, it's not really, it's not on your plate, though, is it?
0: And maybe the vegans should claim the triangle, the vegetarians should claim the square, And if you're a little bit of both, you could have a rhombus.
4: (laughs) I never got on with the rhombus. Um, This is on a similar vein from Katrina, who says, you asked last week why vegetarians feel the need for meat product shaped items. And I wanted to state that not all of us do. Uh, Many would be less than delighted at a dinner party to discover their plate piled high with lovingly crafted replica animal limbs. God, that does make you think, doesn't it? As you mentioned, there appears to be a generational divide on this, which I think might relate to somebody's primary reason for giving up meat. In recent years, being vegan or veggie has become closely linked with the environment. And that's absolutely right. There was no way that the environment was my reason not to eat meat for that seven years in which I didn't eat meat. Anyway, Katrina goes on. Many have given up or reduced meat consumption due to the knock-on effects on climate change, rather than because they find meat itself unappealing. And the explosion in meat substitute products caters well for this demographic, especially those who are flexitarian and still enjoy meat. In contrast, one of the biggest social issues of the 1990s was animal cruelty. People were out demonstrating against animal testing, battery farming or the production of fur coats, and the Meat is Murder campaign became part of this. Nearly all my friends experimented with vegetarianism during this decade for that reason although most were ultimately lured back into the fold by a late-night kebab or a Sunday roast. And you're talking about me, basically, Katrina, although in my case it was a trip to Florida that did it for me.
0: Oh, Lordy. I know. There's more of a story there, isn't there?
4: No, I just uh, couldn't find anything remotely vegetarian and suddenly fancied a
0: a McDonald's. Oh. And that was it. So it always makes me slightly smile that uh, that some vegetarians, close to my heart... uh, have caved in uh, and gone for the sausage that's what's brought them down or a bacon sandwich has brought vegetarians down because it just seems like a massive leap off the high diving board to go in on a sausage
4: (laughs) people always say it's the smell of bacon you're right they do but actually i've never been that attracted by the smell of bacon or indeed by bacon itself because i'm not keen on fat
0: But I also love in Katrina's email, uh, lovingly crafted replica animal limbs. That that
4: really lays it on the line. And
0: I think there's a a restaurant in that, isn't there? There's definitely one in East London. Katrina's really
4: made me think, I mean, a chicken leg... Is quite literally the leg of a chicken. Yeah, I know. I know. And, and you call That's it a chicken leg, and you don't think. But if you if it, the menu you said the leg of a chicken, you'd think about the whole thing rather differently, wouldn't you?
0: Well, you were, but then you're heading towards the I'm a celebrity nonsense, aren't you? Where you over-identify body parts. Sometimes it's better not to know. Uh, can I do one that is titled "Agree with Fee," or will that give you high dudgeon? You're no, right. No, go on. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Jane of Fee, as I often do, says beep. I found myself agreeing with Fee during Thursday's episode of Off Air. Just deep breathe, Jane. You'll be fine. Uh, Fee, you're absolutely right to say that you're not just entitled to ask about someone's heritage uh, in a lot of situations and... Beep. Would say most situations in your emailer with connections to Nigeria and Ghana, who asked when it's OK to ask about someone's heritage, I recognize a sort of well-meaning impulse. I'm white British and had a long term relationship with a British Nigerian man in my 20s and as such probably have ever so slightly more familiarity with Nigerian culture than the average white mill town dwelling northerner. I understand that sometimes you recognize something and feel an urge to show that you love or know or miss something about a particular culture. But to question someone on their heritage in order to reveal your own knowledge, even if it's because you wish to share something joyful about it, is still centering yourself at the expense of a person of colour's right to exist as an individual, go about their day without having to be othered or otherwise represent the whole of their culture. Beep. Goes on to say, I've had many fascinating and enlightening conversations about Nigeria, about heritage and culture and how it feels to exist between two cultures with my then boyfriend and other friends. That's not just information that you're entitled to when you meet someone at an event or down the shops. I'll be grateful if you didn't use my name in the unlikely event that you read this. So you're just going to have to bleep it out. I'm really sorry. I didn't read that bit right at the end. Would that be all right. Should I say a beep and then you can put it back in? Beep. There we go. Um,
4: this is from another listener who says, I listened to your take on the lady-in-waiting who asked Ngozi Falani where she was really from, and it made me reflect on my own experiences as a Jewish woman. Now, I'm not a religious person, um, so I'm like many UK Jewish people who has Jewish roots but chooses to be secular. There have certainly been times when people's first response to hearing that I'm Jewish is to say, I didn't know you don't look Jewish whatever that means and then sometimes the next question is do you eat bacon I find this really uncomfortable because of course I do but I don't necessarily feel comfortable going into the ins and outs of my ways of living as a Jewish woman it's personal and there is a certain amount of complexity about having been brought up in a loving Jewish home and then choosing to be secular until I listened to your show I hadn't really named this as anti-semitic and indeed maybe it isn't But I always then feel on the back foot, so to speak, and I find myself stuttering my words. And yes, I do often come away from those conversations feeling discombobulated and I suppose othered a little bit like Ngozi did. Um, And that is from Abigail. Abigail, thank you for that. Um, And that's a good point. I mean, it is extraordinary, isn't it? I remember this is nothing to do with race, but I remember the most uncomfortable situation I ever felt in as a as a grown-up actually honestly was when I had a my second daughter who was born with a a funny hip and had to go into one of those orthopedic harnesses which are quite unusual you don't actually see them that often I'm not even sure they're still used anyway I took her she was very young and it was a summer's day and I took her out to the park and it was very conspicuous this harness if anybody's ever seen them they'll know that the child's legs are sort of forced into a froggy position by the harness which is Putting the hip joint together—that's what it's doing. It's working at making sure it goes into the right place. And a woman I'd never met before came up to me, bold as brass, and said, "Did you throw that baby down the stairs?" Ooh, and ooh, I know, and that I know this is nothing to do with race, but it was a, a quite astounding thing that she felt able to ask me.
0: And she didn't do it with a. There wasn't—I mean, it wouldn't have been a funny thing to say anyway, but it no. wasn't a, a misguided attempt to start a conversation in the same way that sometimes you know if you saw if you saw someone who had a a a cut lip you might attempt to make a joke about it they you know well i think that's dodgy territory no if you if you've fallen down when you're drunk or something like that it wasn't that kind of i don't
4: think so i think it was just someone who thought it was perfectly okay to ask a harassed mother who looked a bit so what did you say just got really upset and just said no of course not <laughs> just walked on I mean what but what honestly what can you do in such a so I know I appreciate that I've gone off on you know disappeared down a, a conversational cul-de-sac that's nothing to do with race but I do I'm often astounded by how people behave and the rights some people have or think they have to impose They're questions on other people. Mm -hmm. Just absurd.
0: I hope something good has come out of all of the conversations. Well, I hope so too. About Logan Susan Hussey. Because I think think her line of questioning and just the where are you from, where are you really from, all rolled into one question, is asked of too many people, more than we, we might like to think. So hopefully lots of people have Listen. Check themselves in a little bit. I, I really, really hope
4: so. Um, we do hear. I think. I think I'm right in saying that um, the king and the queen consort uh, uh, there have been uh, overtures made to Ngozi Fulani to perhaps have a conversation to facilitate some sort of meeting where all this can be aired in a in a sort of conciliatory and in a happy and uh, well well operated environment. It's all the whole thing just makes you feel a bit sad. But I think you're right, maybe this is an opportunity for lots of people to learn mm. and to think about the way they conduct themselves. I
0: love the way that you just managed to roll off the tongue the king and the queen consort because we've we've been ticked off, haven't we, for saying on a Camilla, just Camilla you know, as if she's a mate of ours, which she's not. Uh, and, of course, she does have a much more kind of official title now. But also, I don't think it's uncommon to refer to the royal family. And that's one of the huge problems that the royal family is experiencing at the moment. it a lot of problems. It does. But that kind of, we feel a familiarity with them that we shouldn't really feel. I
4: mean, it's a terrible thing, but most of us, and I'm sure I've said this before, most of us have family lives that, you know, frankly, wouldn't withstand a great deal of scrutiny. Definitely <laughs> not. We- you and I have both made some mistakes. I don't know why I've slipped into that voice. but um, And certainly, you know, if you were to do a fly-on-the-war documentary about my home life, you'd be... Bored to tears.
0: Um, <laughs> I don't think either of us would make volume three of the Netflix
4: <laughs> documentary. Would really we? wouldn't. We really wouldn't. But um, it, at the moment, it, it's sort of almost tempting because most of us have got quite a lot going on. Not least the fact that we've got all sorts of you know concerns about money and about Christmas and about relatives and all the rest. But um, sometimes you look at the royal, royal family and think, oh well, clearly they're. <laughs> They're having as many struggles as we are, just with more houses. Um, This is from Susie, who says, um, I'm not sure this is really helpful, but I am navigating corporate America as a British person. And we've settled on two useful ways in when meeting new people. Rather than asking questions like, are you married or do you have kids? We found tell me about your family is a much better way to open up a conversation. Similarly, Tell Me About Yourself is a nice way to ask people for personal info that they're willing to share without it being an interrogation. And I think that's very useful. I should say Susie is from Formby on Merseyside and went to the same school as me, although she does point out in the
0: 90s. What would your opening question be in small talk at a drinks party?
4: Um... Gosh, that's a good one. Oh, I, actually, Susie's absolutely right. Um, oh, tell me a bit about yourself is a really nice, open way of starting a conversation. I mean, I generally ask for somebody if I could see their degree certificate. <laughs> and that's my, and yes, and I also uh, throw in the fact that I do have a bronze medal for life saving. Okay.
0: I always like having had a busy day. Have you heard a bit? That's a good one. Because then someone can just, you know, they just tell you a bit about yourself and you're off.
4: Don't ask that to some middle-aged men, though, because 17 hours later, you'll still be hearing about just how busy and important they are. So you've got to watch yourself a bit. However, we interviewed a man today on the programme who was fascinating.
0: (laughs) That is what's called a link. That is a link. Here we go. This one is for you if you've ever been on a plane and have asked to visit the cockpit. Mark Van Honacker is a pilot, best-selling author of Sky. Skyfaring, which is part memoir, part careers advice, all about why he chose to fly high up in the sky. I feel a song coming on. A pilot of some of the world's best and biggest airlines. His new book is called Imagine a City, and it's all about what makes a city. It's personality, it's people, as well as how beautiful cities look from the sky. We asked him to paint us a picture from the cockpit.
2: This is a a really uh, my favorite time of year to to paint that picture in the northern hemisphere, where obviously there's uh, there's so much darkness around during the day. I mean, you know, during the day and night. Um, You know, I I think um, cities are perhaps most evocative uh, from above at night. When we when we we cross a coastline, maybe like the east coast of the U.S. or or Japan, perhaps, and we see this whole line of cities looking sort of simultaneously biological and technical, like a Almost like a, like an image of civilization itself and and moving below us uh, apparently silently uh, perhaps above us we have the northern lights uh, which uh, you know is, is a feature of so many flights um, across the north at this time of year uh, over Canada for example uh, and so uh, yeah the uh, the view of cities from from above is uh, is one of the most special things we can see from the cockpit. I think.
0: Have you ever been scared when you're flying? We were just talking about our first experiences of flight, and and you know when you're not the pilot, the first time you get on board as a passenger, you just can't really understand how it is that it's all working. It's an understandable fear for us.
2: Now, I've never never been afraid um, as a pilot. You know the the training we go through is so incredibly rig- rigorous and 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 ongoing and, and recurrent you know every every six month months or so we're in these these flight simulators uh, which cost uh, a good portion of the cost of an actual airplane um, and they simulate the whole world including its cities uh and all, obviously its airports uh and its weather uh and so you know that experience of uh of being afraid uh while flying is, is something that i know i know some people have um, i often get letters from from passengers from customers who've um, you know, had that fear their whole lives, but it's, uh, it's not something that I'm, uh, you know, uh, you know, it, it do- that doesn't survive the, the extensive training process that every pilot, especially a commercial pilot will go through.
4: Mark, I am not a very happy flyer. And I wonder whether you can reassure me <laughs> about, I know logically it's one of the safest modes of travel. Why does it make so many of us feel so frightened at times?
2: you know i um I often uh, when I get emails from 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 readers of of skyfaring or imagine a city you know often it's that they've had uh you know perhaps a bumpy flight uh you know early on uh, or perhaps they didn't fly for a long time and came to flying uh later in their lives than some of us do um i think I think there's often that kind of that kind of a, a story in someone's background and you know, one of the things that that's most helpful, I think, is to come up to the um, to the cockpit before departure when it when it's still permitted, uh, and to speak to the pilots, uh, and ask. We, you know, if we have a few minutes, we're always happy to um, to talk to people. Uh, also, your cabin crew, of course, are, are very familiar with uh, you know dealing with customers who are perhaps a little uneasy when they get on board, and and they have a series of uh, you know techniques and, and conversational tools that are. That are very helpful. I think, um, you know, many people find uh, turbulence to be, uh, you know, uncomfortable. And, you know, we always say that the turbulence is uncomfortable, but it's never da- it's never dangerous. Uh, and that's something which is, you know, obvious, obvious to us in the, in the flight deck, but is something that uh, is often reassuring to customers who, um, who right. have long before.
4: Sorry to harp on about this, but how is it not? How is it not dangerous? It, f- it does feel, frankly, dangerous.
2: It, yeah, I mean it does. It, it can feel uncomfortable, but it's. But I can. I can assure you, it, it is. It is not dangerous. The, there is a test they do when they when they're certifying an aircraft called the wing box test. I hope I have the name right. Where they, you know, they bend the wings uh, of an airliner up, uh, just you know, to test them. And uh, my understanding is they can almost reach vertical. Um, and so when you when you look out of the uh, the wing out of the window of your flight and you see the the. Uh, the, uh, the wing bouncing a little bit as you're as you're moving through the sky um it is uh you know it is nothing absolutely nothing to worry about and and of course um that's something that we you know is very familiar to us as pilots but is something that uh you know uh, passengers may not always be aware of
0: uh, can you take us back to your childhood mark because actually imagining a world outside of your own family was really important to you wasn't it
2: it was i i grew up in a in a small city in western massachusetts called pittsfield and you know i had two uh two great loves there I, I was in love with airplanes and with with flying and uh you know i had lots of model airplanes and would go to air shows with my dad and uh and look up at the, at the planes flying uh, above us to larger cities and from larger cities um and i was also um you know really drawn to to to, to cities and and you know, I had a light-up globe. You can tell I was one of the, one of the cool kids on the block with my, <laughs> with, my with my illuminated globe. Um, but I, I really did love to turn that globe and to 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 read out the names of the cities on its far side and and to think about uh, what it would be like to someday go to those places. And uh, you know, many young people dream of leaving their homes and going to a going to bigger and brighter places. And uh, you know, and, that, and my version of it combined both those the idea of those places and of course airplanes.
0: Mm. it's it's a little bit more than that I think uh for you though isn't it just because your family life wasn't uh it was blighted by divorce wasn't it so so being somewhere else having an imaginary life somewhere else was very important to you and I'm sure lots of people can really understand that
2: yeah you know everyone you know that story of a young person who dreams of going elsewhere is a very old story um and, and many of us will have their own version of it uh, and for me, it, it was—you know—it was even things as as seemingly small now as a speech impediment. I had trouble saying the um, the that hard American R, uh, which meant people often couldn't understand my first name when I was when I was a kid. And you know, that's the kind of thing that that looms very large for a young person. And you know, my father, who was from Belgium and had, had lived in a number of countries and spoke a number of languages, you know, at one point he told me. Um, you know, it became clear to me that there were other languages with different Rs. And so as a kid, I thought, oh, well, I'll just grow up and learn one of those languages and, and move to that place and every, <laughs> everything will be fine. So I had, I had both a push and a pull, I suppose, uh, when I was leaving home.
0: Mark van Honacker is our guest this afternoon. His latest book is called Imagine a City a Pilot Sees the World. I really loved your chapter about Delhi, Mark, uh, because you talk about uh, seeing the literal embodiment of partition. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
2: Yeah, which is um that's obviously a story that's been um, in, in the news this year as well with with, with um, the anniversary of those of those events. Uh so when you when you fly uh you know one of the one of the ways in which um flying is marvelous is is that you you see how borderless uh the world can uh can appear to be from above um, but of course um, there are some borders you can see uh you can see uh uh the US Canadian border if you know that the uh you know agricultural uh patterns shift as you cross the border and and of course the border between India and Pakistan uh is uh is lit at night. These like are few borders are yeah and so it's uh you can see this line going across the uh uh, the landscape. And, and, and Delhi is, an, is a city um, uh, that means a lot to me because a, a friend of mine uh, is, uh, is is from there. Her family is from there. And, and I learned a lot about that city uh, before I ever went there from her. And then later I had a chance to go there and uh, to be guided by, she wasn't with me, but she and her father sort of told me which sites to see first and, and which uh, which places to go. And, and, and it's one of the ways in which a city becomes meaningful, I think, if you have those personal connections to it.
4: I love the bit in the bookmark where you talk about coming to London, I think for the first time, and you're on, I think it was the M25. I mean, it sounds, you write about it as though it's rather a romantic trip, but um, to most of us, <laughs> the very thought of the M25 is truly terrifying. But you were, you were really amused by the notion of a sign that just said the north. And you just point out that obviously Britain is a small enough country for signs like that to make some sense. I mean, you just couldn't do it in the United States, could you?
2: No, you couldn't. And you can yeah, I mean, you can locate yourself. Not only does it tell you, um, you know, the size of the country, but it tells you roughly where you are on it, <laughs> uh, which, is, which is a good thing when you first arrive here. Um, yeah, that was, uh, I remember that, that, that bus journey very, uh, that coach journey very, very well.
4: Does, does because you come from a, a huge country, does Britain seem a teeny tiny, rather parochial sort of place by comparison?
2: Well, it seems like a, like a smaller place um, geographically, I think. Um, um that you know that's 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 quite clear i think in skyfaring i talked about um measuring countries in terms of hours uh you know in algeria being a two or three hour country and uh you know the u.s being a six or seven hour country depending on the direction you cross it and and the uk obviously being smaller but of course it doesn't it doesn't seem parochial at all especially uh you know given its history and especially to a to a uh to a, a pilot who, who flies from it to, to places all over the world, to cities all over the world.
0: Uh, the shadows that you can see from the sky in the book, you talk about the rings around Bill and Baghdad, uh, you know, evidence of previous cities. Does that do the same thing to you that, that astronauts often talk about, which is actually slightly change your perspective of the modern world?
2: I think so. Uh, you know, I, uh, that, that perspective I, I talked about earlier of seeing cities from above at night and how marvelous it is, um, you know when I see that I think sometimes i'm i 'm channeling those videos that are that you see sometimes from from space stations or satellites of of you know truly an entire country kind of turning towards you uh, at this very slow, steady, and silent pace and and there is a bit of an Earthrise moment maybe um uh from from the from the cockpit um, mm. i think um of course we live in this incredibly urban world now more than half of us live in cities now I think two-thirds of us will by 2050 so that sense of an an urban world is is at the heart of Imagine a City.
0: But do you think if more people could see that incredible view it might help change perspectives too and I understand there's a terrible irony in that isn't there because you'd be on board a plane that is using up a large amount of airline fuel that is very bad (laughs) for the world that you're looking at down below.
2: Yeah, you know i think um i think travel is something that you know is, is an incredibly important thing and, and incredibly important to people now more than ever um, i think no one could could look at the world and think we need less less connection across it um, and i do feel that you know obviously safety is our top priority at work but over over the last few years I've been flying for about 20 years now um, the climate crisis has become you know a really really important part of, of how we of how we go about our job whether that's you know shutting an, an engine down as we taxi in um or using ipads now which have replaced all our paper paper manuals which are very heavy to carry around the world uh the plane i you know I, no one who's read and could doubt my love for the 747 which uh you know is a plane that i uh dreamed of flying when i was a child in fact one of my colleagues uh, she didn't want to become a pilot she only wanted to become a 747 pilot um and, and, she, and she did uh we flew together once uh But the plane I fly now, the 787, is about a third more efficient, Um, and you know that feels good. It feels good to be flying uh, a plane that's that's uh, you know a. Very big step in that direction.
4: Can you just tell us a bit more then about the, the plane that you're currently flying? How many passengers? What size is the engine? Let's get nerdy, if you don't mind.
2: <laughs> I well, You're going to wish you didn't. Oh, okay. Oh no, I'll try to keep my geekery to a minimum. But, but yeah, so the, I, I fly a plane called the the Boeing Seven Eight Seven Dreamliner. It's uh, there. There are three versions of it. Um, it has. Uh, it's notable to passengers because it has windows which are significantly larger than previous uh, airplanes. Um, it has uh, a wonderfully uh, advanced flight deck. It has a head-up display, which is uh, which is something that I hadn't used before on the seven hundred and forty-seven or the uh, the Airbus. Um, and it has it has a bedroom, a little bedroom for the pilots to take a, to take a rest in on, on our longest sectors. Uh, and it has a. Uh, um, a, a more uh, natural cabin air environment so people tend to feel better when they when they disembark
0: can we ask you lots of questions that you will have been asked so many times before but just from the curious passenger angle uh,
2: sure yes please yeah do
0: you ever get used to an onboard toilet um well,
2: um, well I, that's actually i've never been asked that before um uh, well done you, you know it's not yeah, that's a. Um, it's well, obviously, uh, it's it lacks some of the comforts of home, but uh, but it's it serves its purpose and uh, and uh, uh, it's a small price to pay for for journeying uh, across the world. I would say.
4: Right, um, and what about the, the, co- <laughs> the, co- the co-pilot that you work with? Let's say you're flying uh, tomorrow on the, on the seven eight seven. The co-pilot you're working with, will you know them? Will you have worked with them before, or will they be a total stranger?
2: Uh, so, uh, so every flight has a, has a captain and, and a first officer on board, uh, I'm first officer. And, uh, generally we probably won't have flown with them before. Um, it's, you know, the, the 787 fleet is, uh, it, you know, it, it's a large fleet. so it's, it's usually the case that I haven't flown with them before.
0: What happens if you don't get on yeah. or if they do something really annoying, like chew gum with their mouth open? <laughs>
2: um, well, we don't, we don't chew gum. Um, uh, in terms of, um, getting along, you know, I think um, it's obviously a very professional environment. Uh, Most of us love our jobs. Uh, We're very happy to be there. And, uh, you know, and we have, of course, have a whole set of procedures that we have to follow. I would would say that more than half the words we say in the flight deck are written down in a manual. Um, And, uh, you know, people come from all different backgrounds. Uh, I'm fond of that uh, you know, that saying that everyone, everyone knows something you don't know. Um, and, you know, I often fly with people who, who have military backgrounds, who grew up overseas, uh, as I did, um, who have, you know, very long histories of aviation in their families, which, which I don't have. Um, so the, uh, there's, there's always some good stories and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very pleasant working environment, I find.
4: So are you telling me then that when the pilot comes on or the first officer and tells us that there's something somebody really wonderful in charge of um, giving out the refreshments and they're really good and you know that they'll look after us properly... You're lying because you don't know who they are and you've never worked with them before and you've got no idea whether they're any good.
2: Well, uh, well often with the cabin crew, we have flown with them. Um, so oh. the senior cabin crew members, the in-flight managers, um, are, uh, uh, there's obviously a smaller number of them than, than the entire crew. But, you know, of course, everyone's trained to the, to the, same, the same high standards. So we can be, uh, mm. we can be pretty confident of that. Uh,
0: is it true that you never eat the same food as the other person in charge of the plane just in case one meal is off?
2: You know, there's there's a lot of um, rumors about about flying. That is one of the most uh, pervasive. That's that's no longer a rule. Um, another another uh, rumor that I should quash is that you have to have perfect eyesight to fly. Uh, I get that in a lot a lot of emails from readers uh, say, "Oh, I want to become a pilot, but I don't have perfect eyesight." Uh, so just to let you know, you know it can be cor- if you have uh, correctable vision within certain standards, um, the career is is definitely open to you.
4: Can I ask a really obvious question? But where would you most like to be as dawn erupts over a skyscape somewhere in the world and you're in the cockpit?
2: Oh, that is a tough question. Uh, I think, um, you know, I think I'm going to go with Cape Town there, especially this time of year uh, when the uh, little sun goes a long way. Uh, you know, it's such a it's such a remarkable city with with such a you know with such a long history and uh you know i think all the most beautiful cities tend to combine mountains and water and possibly a mediterranean climate uh, as well <laughs> so um i'm gonna i'm gonna go with uh i'm gonna go with cape town also it's you know it's such a long way from it's such a long way from from the uk but it's uh you know it's uh it's tied to it historically as well and uh yeah it, it's a fascinating place and i i I wish it was a seven eight seven route. It's no longer a seven. It's it's no longer a, a route I fly regularly.
0: And Mark, are you a nervous passenger?
2: No, I am not a nervous passenger. I, I love to um, to sit by the window seat. Um, in fact, uh, you know some of the scenes I, I describe in, in Imagine a City in, in the new book are, are most uh, appreciated from the window seat, where you can uh, you can uh, enjoy the view, uh, have some afternoon tea, and and not worry about the driving.
0: Mark Van Honacker talking to us earlier on today. I loved his honesty uh, about all the little bits and pieces about being a pilot. And it must be the most, if you're not scared, I'd be absolutely terrified. It must be the most wonderful job to be able to see the earth from up above as what you do for a living day after day. Must be beautiful, Jane. Really beautiful.
4: He didn't actually sound like uh, a traditional, I suppose I'm thinking, and i guess uh, I'm being terribly sexist here because I'm imagining a man. But I think when I first flew, all the pilots were men. I don't recall hearing the voice of a female pilot. Um, I've never heard the voice of a female I, I, pilot. I have, but it was a long time into my flying life that I did. But you'd always get, and you the traditional voice of a pilot is this rather urbane, nothing to see here, everybody. Good afternoon, I'm Brian Cathcart. <laughs> And we'll be I'm...
0: cruising at thirty thousand feet. Robert, the chief purser, is here for your every whim and desire. We'll be touching down in Dhaka at about seven o'clock. I'll leave you to get some rest.
4: Exactly. You don't. I, I, and I heard a rather different voice remark. Someone who just sounded, if I'm honest, a little more. Oh, this is awful. But just a little more thoughtful. <laughs> Sorry, I'm uh, damning Brian Cathcart without ever having met him. He'd be a wonderful man. But you know what I mean? There's a sort of delivery, isn't there, that um, that Mark was a refreshing alternative to that. Yeah. But look, I want capable people to be flying planes. Let's be <laughs> clear about Sort of, I don't want some exuberant fool you
0: <laughs> flying me across. You don't really want a gag a minute merchant. No.
4: Do you? I don't want Peter Kay. I want someone <laughs> who knows what they're up to. Do you like Peter Kay?
0: I love Peter Kay. Yeah, I, I've read a
4: review of his new show and I think, oh, I'd like to go and see that, but I don't think there's any chance of seeing it. No,
0: and some of the reviews have only been kind of two or three star, I and I have. just discarded that. So, I mean, what you know, I'd happily go and see him. And yeah, even so if I'd it's try. a complete revisit of all of his old stuff, I don't really care. I couldn't get tickets though, I think. I was 217,553rd in the queue. I gave up. Maybe Santa will deliver. Who knows?
4: Um, thank you so much for listening and uh, for emailing us. We do appreciate it. And if perhaps you've listened to this, the podcast, but haven't tried the live radio show, well, you want to try it. Uh, Monday to Thursday, three o'clock till five. It's like the podcast, only we're live. So there's more jeopardy, more cock-ups. And sometimes things go really quite triumphantly pear-shaped. Um, but as, sometimes we just talk really quite interestingly about a range of topics.
0: Well, I mean, you do. House of Lords
4: reform. <laughs> <Yes>. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> Turned out to be a gripper. We talked about that for a very long time today. <laughs> okay, now don't complain. It's Jane and Fee at Times.Radio. Please. please.
0: Okay, you can unfasten your seatbelts now. Can, can I? <laughs> you
4: always strap me up like this.
0: <laughs> okay, good night, everybody. Sleep tight.
4: You have been listening to Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover.
0: Our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Ben Mitchell. Now you can listen to us on the free Times Radio app or you can download every episode from wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget that if you like what you heard and thought, hey, I want to listen to this but lie, Uh, Then you can, Monday to Thursday, 3 to 5 on Times Radio.
4: Embrace the live radio jeopardy. Thank you for listening and hope you can join us off air very soon. Goodbye.
3: The train is now approaching.
1: Junction and platform. Passengers. Airport, please stay on board. Next stop,
3: road station.
0: iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with.